Brilliant. Do you play for any side? Yeah, like you. Southall United. Sorry, squad. <laughs> play for Hanslow Harriers, girls' side. Got a summer tournament coming up. Should you come along? Have a trial. A trial? You think I'm good enough? Watch you a couple of times. You've gotten really good. I'm joining a girls' team. Huh? They want me to play in proper matches. The coach said I could go far. Jesse Putter, now that your sister has got engaged, it's different. You know how people talk. I don't want you running around half naked in front of men, huh? Look how dark you've become, playing in the sun. Mom, I'm really good. What family will want a daughter-in-law who can run around kicking football all day but can't make round chapatis? I don't want this shame on my family. That's it. No more football. Just your mother is right. It's not nice. You must start behaving like a proper woman. The reel is finished. The house lights are up. It's time to examine Bend It Like Beckham as the first part of our ongoing series on Family Matters. This is Fields of Glory, and I'm Biggs. And I am Aaron. Biggs, this movie was a big deal when it came out. I definitely did not see it. It is now 20 years old. I just listened to Bring It On, and at the beginning of that episode, we're like, wow, this movie's 22 years old. How did that happen? And here we are again saying, wow, this movie's 20 years old. How did that happen? Something about the 2000s going on with sports movies, and in particular, feel-good sports movies? Am I on a limb there? Am I making that up? You seem to be the guy to ask about that. What's going on with the early 2000s sports flick? I feel like most sports movies are feel-good at the end of the day. I mean, to be fair, this is feel bad for big stretches of it. It does the thing where somebody's telling a lie and they're telling a sustained lie and you know it's going to happen. I hate those plots so much. And it's just because I don't like the anxiety it causes because I live my life just saying the truth. I know that these are teenage kids, but those are always plots I have a hard time with because I'm like, just be yourself, you know, (laughs) which I realize is the entire point of this movie. So, right. Easy for us to say. And um, also like the point of the movie is that it's not so straightforward for a lot of people that want to play football and or soccer. This is the top grossing soccer film of all time. That is something several people said, which I think is pretty fascinating. It got me wondering, what are the top grossing sports movies of all time? There's a couple of lists. I have the wiki list here. I'm just curious what your thoughts are. Top five sports movies on this list. Furious 7, The Hunger Games Catching Fire, The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 1, The Hunger Games, Forrest Gump, and number six is The Hunger Games games mocking j part two forrest gump has some sports in it the other ones are sporty yeah like fast and the furious they race for papers technically a sport i suppose it's interesting to me how full of war all of these are yeah (laughs) it feels to me like they're playing fast and loose with the idea of a sports movie it continues if you read the next five you have number seven casino royale Hmm. poker yeah right poker okay ready player one esports dig it yeah yeah okay number nine and ten cars two and cars number i don't know number 11 gladiator uh you have to go all the way down to number 17 to find the 2010 Karate Kid, which made $359 million. I'm, I'm pretty sure that this isn't adjusting for inflation. I guarantee it's not. It feels wrong to me. Rocky 1976, $225 million is all the way down at 35 I found other lists where it was first. Yeah, the idea that the Jaden Smith movie was more successful than the Karate Kid original, yeah. to me, that just speaks like we did not adjust our numbers. What's pretty cool is if you watch closely at the beginning of Bent It Like Beckham, you see a bunch of dudes banging around in a park being silly and idiots and two of 
them do the crane kick pose. And I'm like, hey, there it is. We talked about that on this show. So this costs between three and a half to six million dollars to make. Opening weekend, 161.5 thousand. It's not good. Worldwide gross, 76.5 million. Pretty good. As Americans, we are jerks when we look at stuff because we will look at the domestic gross right. and pretend like that matters. It doesn't matter to movie companies. I almost sent you a list today where they were comparing movies and it compared Rocky's domestic gross to everyone else's worldwide gross. And I'm like, that's not fair. <laughs> These companies, especially around the 2000s going forward, do not care about domestic versus worldwide. Right. The press cares. Nobody else cares. Just put it in the bank and we're happy about it. Does not matter where it comes from. I mean, China is the second biggest market. If you make something that looks like an absolute bomb here and it goes off on China, that's when you get those sequels where you're like, how did they make a sequel to this? I thought it was a bomb. And it's because you heard the domestic gross. You did not hear the worldwide gross. Right. Worldwide gross, it walks away with a giant sack of money. This is where Transformers really excels when a lot yeah. of Americans are like, I don't know. This is interesting because when we talked about Bring It On back in, I think it was episode four of this show, you had a pretty cool equation that we played out, which is that if you made a couple mid-level movies for like 11 million or so, one of those would hit and pay off a whole batch of them. And we talked about how Bring It On was made for around 11 gross, like 90 something. There it is. Nice job. This movie, $3.5 million, way less than Bring It On, and two years later... So we talked about how Bring It On was like a mid-budget film for that era. I think this is really proving that point because two years later, Bend It Like Beckham comes out at like three and a half, six million, almost less than half. This actually ties in with our episode on The Natural because I talked Ooh. about how Robert Redford was starting up Sundance. Yeah, this movie, the director had it written but hadn't made the movie yet and sold it at Sundance. She went there specifically to find financiers. So this was a low-budget movie. This doesn't even follow into that model that you were just talking about about this is like the independent model. I, we, we talk about Brother from Another Planet in my 103 class and we talk about how John Sales spent like, you know, at least 300000 of the $800,000 budget was his own money. And uh, that is a low budget movie at $800,000. This is $3 million. And if you watch these movies, like you can see the differences, I think. Although Bend It Like Beckham holds up. Yeah. Like 20 years later, this movie I think ages pretty well. Uh, again, I said I had not seen it. I did enjoy it. I think this is a wholesome movie is what the contemporary audience would call this, but it's not a Hallmark movie. Loved this way more than Rudy. I told you, I think that this character is far more sympathetic than Rudy, even though she is fake. So is the Rudy of the movie. We talked about that. You said that you kind of had some problems with this, and I just want to get those up top before we go to the tail of the tape. I said it felt like something was missing from this movie. I sent you some lit maybe that clarified it. You want to touch on that real quick? I'm a big plot guy. Plot is the most important thing to me, like the writing of the thing. Did you accomplish what you set out to write. I thought that I was sitting down to watch a movie about lesbians, and I kept seeing all sorts of little signs that this is a movie about lesbians. For example, our protagonist looking at a girl in the locker room, like looking at her breasts, which mm -hmm. that scene just doesn't make sense now. And it's because when it got picked up, the company that picked it up basically axed the lesbian plot line. So she left strings of it in, but it makes it really uneven. And to me, if you have to ax 
it, leave it subtle and leave it in there and then just cut the love story altogether. But instead, they created this love story with the coach, which is problematic in all sorts of ways. It really left me upset with this movie, to be honest. And I didn't like out and out hate the movie, but I hated that. The lit in particular, we'll touch on it later, I'm sure, is called Lesbians in the House, Female Queerness in Bend It Like Beckham and Chutney Popcorn. It's by Anita Rajendran from New Cinema's Journal of Contemporary Film. 2012 is when that was published. Yeah, she talks about exactly this. And she says that the consolation prize is that this movie continues to be a kind of inspiration for what she calls the perverse spectator. The perverse spectator is a specific kind of viewer. This term she links to Jeanette Steger's formulation of a viewer who tries to see themselves in a movie that may not be written for them. And in this is interesting because for gay and queer folks to watch this movie, uh, Tony has some presence and the article talks a little bit about how they put that experience on a safe off to the margins gay man and they have little bits of it. But these folks would agree. They think that throughout the movie, you can still see that gaze. And the fact that it is an open speaks to their experience of having to keep it closeted. And obviously, Obviously, we will talk at the end about how important this movie was when it came out for individuals, particularly women soccer players, particularly women soccer players of color, particularly South Asian women soccer players. They saw themselves in a movie that they never would have expected to see. And there are so many cool drops that we'll get to that are like, wow, that is amazing. And that is obviously what we want and come to expect in 2022. Yes. For its time, we will say, apologizing for bigotry of the past, right? This is predictable, but at the same time, there's enough of it in there for people to see themselves. I do think it feels like a huge disappointment. I agree that that's not in there. Kind of, again, evoked our conversation in Bring It On, where we talked about how that movie at this particular time in history was trying to speak to homophobia, but doing it in kind of homophobic ways. This article that we're talking about says that Bendit, like Beckham, is able to laugh at Mrs. Paxton's homophobia, even as it confirms that she was right after all. Good Indians girls cannot be lesbians as the film narrative proves in the end. It's trying to be accommodating and I think it's doing a better job than Bring It On at speaking to this, but it's also doing a worse job because it was like apparently supposed to be. That's a huge part of the subplot that would give it so much more teeth, right? Like, I don't know. Above everything else, I hate that they cut the subplot. I understand that to get the movie made, you have to make concessions. These are things that happen. Should have pulled out all of the subtext at that point because the subtext completely goes against what they're trying to pull off with that subtext. It it just bothers me, man. Like you get this girl who's so clearly lesbian, who's like looking at her teammates, who keeps hearing the same thing over and over again, where like people are questioning her sexuality and it's all about like a choice. And then when you pull it away, you're right. Like it absolutely affirms what they're saying, which is like, you can't be lesbian because you're an Indian girl. Being somebody who's related to somebody who's having a lot of problems coming out to other family members right now, it just rubs me a wrong way even harder because like, I see how hard it is for them. And to watch a movie like this that seems to say, like, just go back in the closet, even if that's not what they're intending to do, it just really, really bothers me to my core. Yeah, there's another one we'll touch on, Multiculturalism, Gender, and Bend It Like Beckham. This is Gamal Abdel-Shahid and Nathan Kalaman Lamb. This is in Social 
Social Inclusion from 2014 is when that came out. Um, and both of these articles say that Bend It Like Beckham tries to like bend the rules instead of breaking the rules and thus in many ways preserves the rules. This article in particular says that it falls short on con- conceptions of hybrid identity that do not privilege one hegemonic culture over the other. It presents a feminist veneer underneath lurks a troubling reassertion of the value of chastity, masculinity, and patriarchy. It reveals how seductive it is to imagine that structural inequalities can be overcome through involvement in teams. And that is a big conflict part that potentially would have added a lot of conflict to the movie. It's still in there. The the general takeaway across both articles, it's like at this point in time, this movie is okay with gay and queer folks as long as they're not the protagonist of the movie. I have nothing wrong with gay people as long as you are not gay is essentially what the mother says at the end of the movie. And we're laughing at that mother for being ignorant, but I think at the same time, she's given a lot of space to feel that way. Other people are kind of echoing those feelings. I feel a little bit less concerned about it as you do. I think it's kind of interesting that it is in there because a lot of the soccer players that I saw, there's a documentary that came out, Bend It Like Beckham, 20 Years On. Uh, that's from the BBC. And they interviewed a couple of athletes and, and all of them were just kind of talking about how every time you're a woman playing sports, you confront this. I think I found an article um, a while back when we were doing some research that said every woman athlete on earth has to confront, quote, allegations that they are queer. And it's just not something that male athletes have to put up with. The presumption there is that all male athletes are straight because men do sports and men hang out with men and all of those things. Whereas the history says women don't do sports and women are supposed to be socializing with women, but, you know, living with and satisfying men and all of this stuff. That's that patriarchy. I would say from the male perspective, it's also there, but it's different. It's different in that, like, when you're in the locker room, you're not supposed to look for too long. You're supposed to, like, behave in a certain way. Like, there is definitely unwritten rules of conduct for how you act or else oh yeah you're in a space where you're going to get hurt like physically hurt and that was my experience growing up and so it's a little bit different like there's not an expectation that you're gay right as there is for female athletes but it's just insidious on a different level yeah jackson Katz. again we've talked about cats in the the show quite a bit his work on toxic masculinity he talks about how men push each other into a small little box and one of the, the things that you cannot violate within that box is what's called the homosocial homosexual boundary Men are supposed to spend all of their time with men, but do not, huge caps, all underlined, do not fall in love with any of the men that you are spending time with, or you will be beaten. You will be shunned. You could be murdered. I mean, these are things that nobody would condone, but that everybody seems to rationalize as part of the kind of male reaction to homosexuality, and it's much more severe. Whereas with female athletes, and I think we do see it in this movie, it's a mean joke. Yeah. It, it's strips them of their femininity, it strips them of their propriety, it strips them of their connections to their family and all of that, but it is far less severe. And with men, the expectation is that you are straight, and with female athletes, apparently the expectation is that they are queer. This movie, everyone agrees, tries to have its cake and eat it too, and I think in many ways it succeeds, but this is definitely one of the places that I think it fails rather spectacularly, for sure. Should we go to the tape? Let's. 
Jess Bomra loves soccer. Her sister Pinky is about to get married. Jess spends her time playing at the park with her friend Tony and other boys. Jules Paxson, a member of the amateur women's team, sees her play and invites her to practice. Jess meets the coach, Joe, a former player who blew out his knee. He is not impressed at first, but soon realizes she has loads of potential. Jules regularly plays soccer with her father, enraging her mother, who wants her to focus on getting boys. Jess's family, also obsessed with her lack of a future husband, forbid her from joining the team. She lies that she is working a part-time job with Jules to cover her practices. Jess's father discovers she's playing for the team and Joe swoops in to convince her father to let her play. He puts his foot down saying that he had to face racism when playing cricket in his youth. Joe tells Jess that her parents are wrong and she should make her own decisions. Joe's father is apparently a huge celebrity in the Bollywood scene. He's been in like 150 feature films or something like that. Yeah, I've seen him somewhere, but I couldn't put my finger on it. Sure looks familiar to me. As far as like the family dynamic is concerned, which is kind of what we are after with this entire batch. I thought it was like pretty well done. I really liked his character. His reticence to let her play based on his own experience in the past, I thought was a a bit of a stretch, kind of a cop out. This is a straight up trope. You're going to see it more. Well, we saw shades of it in Rudy. It was Mm kind of, except it was the inverse. Fortune is like, I thought it was because of my race that I didn't get to play. His father's father chased his dream. And so, yeah. Oh yeah. His his granddad bought a bunch of cows and never learned from the farming game that when you do that, they all die at the same exactly. time and you're really sad about it <laughs> it will not be the last time we see it in this podcast i am sure another just glaring discrepancy before we continue the tape when it comes to men playing sports it's typically a way to get the girl when it comes to women playing the sport it is like men are not going to like you if you play the sports just a terrible double standard there Jules and Jess bond over their crushes for Joe. Later, Pinky covers for Jess as they travel to Germany to play a match. Jess misses the penalty kick and they lose a game. They go out clubbing afterwards and Jules sees Jess and Joe nearly kiss. Jules feels betrayed. Jess's parents see her in a newspaper photo taken at the match. The bus returns with Jules storming off the bus and Jess awkwardly seeing her parents waiting for her. Later, Jess unsuccessfully tries to talk it out with Jules at her house. Jules' mother overhears parts of the conversation and thinks they're in a lesbian relationship. Jess's father goes to one of the games. She has a slur thrown at her by an opponent. She's penalized for retaliating. Joe balls her out in the locker room. She runs out and chases her, telling her that the coach has to hold everyone accountable. She begins to cry, and he holds her just as her father finds her. Joe informs Jess and Jules that the championship match will have a scout from American attendance, but it is held on the same day as Pinky's wedding. Jess decides to give up soccer and goes to the ceremony. Just before the half point of the game, Jess's father tells her to go to the match so that she will be as happy as her sister. The team is down by one when Jess arrives. They rally and win the game with a free kick. The scout offers Jess and Jules scholarships to Santa Clara University. Jess returns to the wedding. Jules and her mother follow. Jules's mom accuses them of being lesbian. Her daughter forces her into the car and angrily tells her that they're friends. Jess is afraid to tell her parents about the scholarship. Tony, who is closeted, tells them that they are to be married, but only if she chooses what college she wants to go to. Jess bats the lie aside and tells the truth. Jess's father decides that he doesn't want her to suffer like he did from quitting cricket and approves. Jess informs Joe of the events but denies him a kiss. She decides that her parents wouldn't be able to handle her moving to America and dating a white man. Jess and Jules go to the airport and leave and see David Beckham, their idol, just as Joe confesses his feelings for Jess. They kiss in the background. At the close of the movie, Pinky is pregnant and Jess's father is playing cricket with Joe. She tells him that he doesn't know what it's like to be called a packy and he's like, I do know what it's like, apparently because he's Irish. And I'm like, dude, you don't though. You just don't though. Don't say that. Don't say that. (laughs) Yeah. I I got what he was getting at that the Irish are being discriminated against in Great 
Britain. I just don't know the situation well enough to even comment on it. It's the same general thing, but it's it's different specifics, right? It's not the same as when a person of color tells a white person that they've experienced racism and a white person is like, I'm persecuted too, you know, because she's talking in particular about the ways that India and Pakistan relate yes. and how Britain will just like lump them all together and say, you're all the same. And that's like pretty violating for a lot of people within that particular context. If you know your history between those countries, we're trying to empathize. We're offering sympathy. It's just not the same. There's better solutions there. I do think that he can tell her not to get a red card, not to lose her head and all of that without pretending that he knows what she's going through. Let me ask a question because the writer is of the same descent as the character. She also directed the movie, right? Grinder Chata, yeah. Do you think that she's making a point about overall bigotry or do you just think that she's putting it from the character's point of view and the character doesn't totally understand, but they just go through it because it's a subtle way to talk about it? It's hard to say. I feel like the audience is not equipped to know the difference and the movie definitely does not give you the difference. I felt like it was the movie pulling for Joe at that point. I did too, but I'm just asking you because I often think about who's holding the pen. And in this particular case, it's not a white person holding the pen. So it's, no. it's interesting. I, this is the first time we've run into that. I think you see it in the form of the insult that is thrown and her immediate reaction to that and her anger in reaction to that and her despondency at the end in the reaction to that. We are used to seeing black folks experience racial trauma on film. It's one of the only forms that their stories will take, we're told again and again and again. We're used to seeing trauma and violence against women on film again and again and again. This is a very particular contour of that kind of racialized oppression that we do not see very often. And so to that extent, giving it some kind of visibility, that that is where I think she's really stepping in. But at the end of the day, whether it is written in or just shot this way, I do feel like the movie is like, Joe's right. He's got a point. He's been there. And she doesn't provide any pushback for it. None of that. The parents are there at the airport, but they don't see Joe and Jess kiss. That was he's like, She's like, we'll explain this to them when we get back. Somehow they missed that. Santa Clara, California showing up here at the end of this movie. Once again, California being the place that we're trying to go. It's funny because they talk about how America has the women's league and they really want to go there and play. And everything I read now is like, you know, the women's super league that we have right now is way stronger than the American league. So now all the Americans are going to Britain to play. All right, so let's go to our thematic, Living the American Dream in Hanslow. This movie is interesting because it is about assimilation, and it makes me think of Marciniak's book, Alien Hood, and the Logic and Rhetoric of Exile, and in particular where she talks about what's called the third space. The third space is what is created when you go somewhere that you don't belong, and so you're not where you belong, and you're not where you are, and so you're kind of this third position. And Marciniak says this is particular to immigrants and particular to the children of immigrants especially because when they come, they're no longer seen as, quote, authentic by their the people in their home country because they left, and they're never accepted as authentic. The fact that these people are quintessentially British has to be fought over, which is alarming given the colonial history of India and Great Britain in particular. So this movie is, is have its cake and eat it too. It is preserving as much of the culture and as much of the norms and as much of the, you know, family traditions and things of these particular individuals, while at the same time showing them as successfully middle class, having a nice big yard next to everybody else's big yard, doing quite a bit of shopping. There's quite a bit of shopping in this movie. 
they're also, you know, really, really worried about their kids like fitting in to like the the community that is there. I think to me, the, these articles are kind of talking about how this movie ultimately just reverts back to this like kind of base expectation of what it means to be British while it's trying to like open the boundaries. Several people that were interviewed are like they wanted to transform what it what it means to be British. And in many ways, they think the movie succeeds. But at the same time, if you look now at the soccer teams over there, there's just not a lot of South Asian women on the teams. The racism in this movie is still prevalent. So I don't know how much it succeeded. Uh, what do you think about this line? You're looking at, at these children who are trying to integrate in with British society, but also honor their families. And it seems like again and again and again, the answer is to be more British. Or traditionally Punjabi. You can be like strictly traditionally Punjabi living within those strict guidelines or be British. Those are your choices. And we see this in American cinema a lot too. This isn't unique to Great Britain before everybody kind of turns their noses because like right. we see movies like... Like, for example, Godfather and Godfather 2 on the AFI top 100 list. Yeah. A lot of this is about how the second generation handles the first generation that came over and like how they've handled integrating into America, but also are looked at as an other. And like that's just core to the movie. That's the experience of an immigrant is you grab things when you come over that are familiar because you're completely uprooting yourself from your roots. And then all of a sudden your children want to be a lot more like the people around you and there's always a push and pull there you know like we see that time and time again marciniak talks about the laudatory transnationalist the the good alien the good immigrant and it's essentially someone that stands in line and that believes in most of the values of the places that they're going that accepts and justifies the security state is her dad a police officer he's wearing some kind of uniform looking badge that to me linked him to the security state and um that did too also make me think of marciniak this movie is not made by outsiders like multiple people that uh were interviewed in that documentary talked about how the gaze of this movie is not a white person looking at indian culture this was a group of people that made a movie about what it's like to be uh indian in Britain and they put out casting calls to local communities and the local community showed up in spades and the wedding ceremonies and all of this like none of that is ham-fisted it all feels like legitimately celebratory uh, you know I don't know if it's authentic or not who knows anything about that but the point is that not it does us. not right yeah, <laughs> don't, yeah talk about positionality here the the movie and, and the people that are interviewed try really hard to not ham-fist that and at the same time it is it's trying really 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 hard to focus on what it means to be British. And before we get too far from the opportunity, it means you have to say in it. I don't know how this word works. Sometimes it sounds like isn't it. No, mom, I want my truly more fitted. That's the style, isn't it? And other times it's used in ways that just don't make sense. Mom! No, no, nothing. I'm, I'm just at work, innit? And I'm like, what is this? And Britain people get mad at Americans for using idnet all the time, but we genuinely do not understand how this word works. Yeah, they do say that a lot in that movie. Innit? <laughs> and at interesting times that just make less sense than isn't it. Just thought that went with my hair, innit? One other note worth making about this. Valerie Carr and the documentary spoke to the fact that this was made one year after 9-11. And when you look at the American imaginary Sikhs from India, who, by the way, are not Muslim. This movie is very clear about that. They get lumped in with all of that bigotry that follows after 9-11. Valerie Carr has a whole documentary series about Sikhs that were shot and harassed. 
the Sikh temples shot up and things like that because people conflate them with the Taliban because they wear turbans. Just ignorance abounds here. And uh, several people said that this movie doesn't seem to be apologizing. It was it was like we could just stop apologizing and be ourselves. And it does distance itself from Muslims. But again, that's not necessarily new to 9-11. That's a distinction making that goes way back. You know, for 2002, for this movie to hit and to be as big as it is and to try to give that kind of representational presence, even if it is trying to be British, and in many ways, especially if it's trying to be British, we could make an argument that that's good. That that's, you know, making important political statements at a time where everyone is just going to be afraid of anyone that's brown with a turban. This is a bad time to bring this up because I'm absolutely certain it is unrelated. But I do have a note to ask you, Biggs, why are there so many airplanes in this movie? There are a lot of airplanes. They show up early. They show up often. And they're not going anywhere until the very end. It's a romantic comedy. You always have to have the airport. It's really important to a relationship. Every level of the relationship, you got airplanes somewhere. It's just interesting that we see a lot of airplanes flying over it flies over their house and it happens at weird movies in the plot i don't know i feel like there's some kind of semiotic component going on with the jet aircraft in this movie i guess you didn't notice it it's got me scratching my head i definitely noticed the airport scene at the end and obviously they want to go to america that's like kind of part of what they want to accomplish but that doesn't show up until two-thirds of the way through the movie one of the first times you see it is flying over their house and so part of me is like this is a class narrative they live close to the airport but I don't know that that's what it's doing. It does not seem to be doing that. They seem to be fairly well off. Their yard is nice. Their house is big. It zooms out on the neighborhood with the lady doing the, the laundry next door. Maybe this is like the Rocky thing with trains, right? Like they're constantly getting trains in. <laughs> Maybe that, that speaks for hard scrabble. <laughs> yeah, trains were the sixth man for the Rocky episode. So sorry, airplanes. You will not win sixth man today from me. I have a different one. That's an interesting point right there. Philadelphia sounds like trains and London sounds like airplanes. They spend a lot of time on the tube, but we don't listen to or look at trains passing in the tube. It's airplanes for some reason. Okay, so let's get the standpoint. Bomber and Paxton exploring the end notes to gay subtext. <laughs> so we already talked about that angle of it a little bit. So what else do you have here? You know, that angle we gets put on Tony, where Tony is gay. And she has this moment where she realizes that Tony is gay, and she's like, but you are Indian. And one of the tools, I just go looking for generic tools. The perverse spectator is a tool that you can go looking for. Charles and I talk about how queer folks watched Ellen DeGeneres for years, and she did all sorts of, like, winking to allow queer people to view her show, which was superficially straight, but to enable them to see themselves in there, and I think that this movie is doing that. The Rajendran article talks about this kind of Jekyll and Hyde-like comment, that comes with one, a self-awareness and two, a kind of expressive and naive shock. So the self-awareness is like, oh, wow, Indian people can be gay. This is a kind of affront to a traditional culture. And the naive shock is like someone I know is gay. And with Jekyll and Hyde, it's like the self-awareness is like a scientist can also be a monster. And the naivete is that monster is me. That's I am the person, right? It is the same person inside. That's just an interesting way to go looking for character development and to see like where that kind of moment of self-awareness followed 
by naive shock comes part and parcel. I feel like you have it a lot in superhero movies with like origin stories and stuff like that. But here it's, you know, we see it playing out in a veiled homophobic way that is speaking to this issue. I just thought that was a cool tool. The other standpoint note that I have comes from the BBC documentary um, Bend It Like Beckham 20 Years On. And they're interviewing Shireen Ahmed, who's a CBS sports writer, who says that this is one of the most important movies in the world for her, like just to, to see this movie. It was the most impactful for me before Gurinderji had created this film. I never saw myself in those intersections represented on film anywhere. And I still haven't. It's been 20 years and I haven't. The specific intersections of football with cultural community life, those things for me, it was wild to see. I I cried, I laughed, and I still do 20 years later. And I think what's really interesting is that we said at the top that it felt like something was missing from this movie. It, It felt to me like something was not there and I couldn't put my finger on it. And you said it's probably the queer subplot that got pulled out. Yet even without that, this movie is like a bundle of commentary. You know, like it is a good movie at the end of the day. There's nothing I hate more and it's an infamous story in Hollywood and it happens over and over again in all sorts of mediums where somebody makes you change the thing and disrupts the thing by trying to change it. But yeah, that doesn't make the rest of it not relevant. It's just significant to me that there's so many things going on here. You know, it's like in my mind, I'm, I'm comparing a lot of movies to Rocky just because that's what this show is kind of setting us up to do. This movie is way more sophisticated than Rocky. 100%. Yeah. It feels leaner. Like the first time I viewed this, I'm like, this just feels like a nice, happy sports movie. There's just not a lot going on. But the, the deeper you dig into this movie, it has a whole lot of threads that are very, very significant. And the fact that they pair Jess shooting the last goal with Jess's sister lifted up in a marriage ceremony, a a particularly Indian marriage ceremony, is meaningful. It's frustrating from the heteronormative gaze because the expectation is that marriage is this big accomplishment that women need to find. And we find that on both sides of the the racial equation in this movie. It's like, you have to find a man. You have to get married. No one's going to tell anybody why. It's just what has to happen in order for the family to be happy or the person to be happy. They're going to sexualize their own daughters in very, very weird ways. Jules' mom does this. Jess's family does this. We see that on both sides. But if we can put that kind of heteronormative critique on Simmer, not get rid of it, but just keep it there, we can say like, it's it's really cool that this movie celebrates two very different kinds of success. It does not reject what it means to be feminine within that culture. It tries to merge it with what it means to be a woman soccer player. I think it does so really, really successfully at the end of this movie. I think the Pavarotti song does a very, very good job. And also the way that they are kind of putting the images of her family in her vision. So the very beginning of this movie opens with her imagining that she's on like a TV taking a, a cross from Beckham and heading it into the goal and all the sportscasters are talking and then her mom shows up and yells at them for talking about her daughter on TV. Legitimately funny the way they're looking at the camera like who invited this person to come on? <laughs> Just not the interview we would want. But that's like a fantasy in her mind. And then we see it again at the very end when they're all standing there instead of the other teammates in the opposing team. They're like telling her, you can't make this goal. You 
can't make this goal. And the way that the music is celebrating her taking that shot at the same time that her daughter is being elevated into her status, I just thought that was cool. When we look at Rocky and Adrian's relationship, not good. Not good. It is creepy and weird and wrong in all ways. I continue to laugh at your note about the screenwriting at the end of Rocky. How someone sat down and wrote on a screenplay, Rocky, Adrian, Adrian, Rocky, Rocky, Adrian, Adrian, Rocky, and it just goes back and forth. And I laugh every time I think about that now because it is so basic and so stupid. And yet when you have the music and the camera and the crowd. It like all comes together and it's pretty epic. They're trying to find each other. There's too much going on. La 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 la. Okay, cool. This movie has two very distinctive plots, two like conflicting plots that find each other in very, very interesting ways at the end. Weirdly, it's an opera song tying it all together. One of the other weird notes I wanted to make linking this to bring it on, there's a musical for this movie too. Just Minden. Remember who you are. It came out in 2015. The director says it's really, really cool. There's a fun interview with the director where she's like, the more the music plays into the story, the more the culture that she's trying to represent shows up. So that was kind of interesting to me. I watched a couple clips of it. It seemed a little too on the nose. Sometimes with musicals, you run into the problem where it's like, we are singing out loud the things that are happening, and it's just way too literal, and I kind of took that from this. Okay, so let's do excitement. Bamra bounces from the big day to bounce back in big game. They kind of yada, yada, yada a lot of the excitement here. There's like a wedding, and then she's running back, and then she's changing clothes, and then everybody's like trying to get her in the game. Is it Jules that scores the tying goal? Yes. And then scores the winning goal with that scene you were talking about, and then all her... Teammates are like helping her get dressed for the wedding and they're trying to help her get back to the wedding. So weirdly, the game feels a little unimportant in this. And I know it's the point is the game, but it feels like the wedding is the more important part. And so it's like the teammates pulling together to try and get her there, them being offered a scholarship. All of these other things feel like they're more important in the game. The game weirdly feels like a footnote to all the action going on in the scene. It's interesting that there are a lot of montages uh, throughout this movie, and they are all pretty much focused on the women athletes training and showing us, you know, what they go through when they train. And they're all really good. It's all worth watching. It's all very, very interesting. But it feels very different than the kinds of training montages that we see in other movies. Like with Rocky, we talked about how there's a real progression there. I don't feel like there's much of a progression here. It's like, here they are training, here they are training, here they are playing, here they are training. It's not like the team's experiencing the ups and downs. So while the team is there to be a counterbalance to her family life, the team does not have much presence in the movie, including at the final. And I think this is definitely a byproduct of trying to have your cake and eat it too. I, I love the fact that we cannot do everything at once, right? We can't do all of the things at the same time. If you're looking here, you're not looking there. If you're looking there, you're not looking here. And for this movie to split time between the wedding and the big final game, I think that it does a decent job, which is hard to accomplish that this final game means a lot, that this final game is going on while the wedding is going on, and she has to leave the wedding to go to the final game and come back. It accomplishes something that, again, the documentaries picked up. There were multiple 
multiple women that said that her changing out of her sari in the back of the car going to the game really spoke to them. Like, this is something that women have to do. We have to leave our life as a feminine object and move into the realm of sports. And we typically have to do it in conditions that are just not very accommodating, like the backseat of a car or something like that. And it is a drastic shift from the picture perfect image of dignity and grace and, you know, full body dresses and things to a soccer kit. That's just a wild swing. And we see it again at the end when everyone's helping her get dressed in the locker. Um, an athlete picked that moment up in particular to say it was beautiful for her because it's got the sari there with the soccer uniforms. All of them are helping her get dressed, meaning she is like a fundamental part of the team. She just scored the big goal. They want to get her back to the wedding, representationally doing all sorts of cool stuff. Yeah, it's a metaphor for making all of these things work together, right? Right. And, and, and it is accomplishing all of that. And functionally, what it means is we have to split our gaze. And if we are expecting to spend our time glued to the spectacle of the sport, which is kind of the expectation for the final, that's like the whole point, it feels like we're losing that. The progression we get is she doesn't hit the PK in the beginning and she hits the PK at the end to win. It's more of like an individual progression. There's relational progressions between her and her coach and her and Jules and stuff like that. But that's about it. I'm going to be honest. I'm okay losing the excitement in this particular thing because it, it's more about dramatic stakes in this movie. Yeah. Sports movies are never really truly about just the sport. They're always about something else. Right. And this movie is prioritizing what it's trying to say. And I'm always down for that. The parents. In both families, it's the dad who buckles. In both families, it's the dad that supports the daughter to play the sports and the mom who does not want it to happen. The mom has to be the last person to agree in both instances. The articles picked this up as a good example of kind of patriarchy, where it is still the patriarch in the family that is supporting the daughter and encouraging her and giving her the opportunity to go and do what she wants. Dad says she can leave the wedding. Dad supports Jules when mom comes out and says she's not going to get any boys or anything like that. It could be more complex, I think, in that case. We'll continue with Fields of Glory after a quick word from our sponsors. Hey, listener, this is Aaron from Fields of Glory, and I'm sitting here with my co-host Biggs, and we want to tell you that if you've just not gotten enough of all of the wonderful ideas that he and I have to share about movies, have not gotten enough of us talking to people that we know to access their wonderful ideas about movies and other things, well, good news for you, we have a Patreon. We have a place that you can go to get all sorts of really cool content that you can't find anywhere else. Biggs, you want to tell them all the details about what's on there? Yeah, so we have four batch episodes for every three episodes where we do a theme, we break it down and figure out how all of them are alike. Yeah. We've got five watch-alongs to the movies for The Karate Kid, Rudy, The Natural, Kingpin, and A League of Their Own, with a couple of guests sprinkled in there. We've got a Lost Zero episode from the original idea of what we were going to do in the show that we had to scrap because it was far too long. Yeah. We've got expanded episodes for Rocky, Rudy, Any Given Sunday, and He Got Game. We've got a Hot Take, which is a fake sports show that we did back in the day. We've got 11 Real Roulettes where we picked a movie at random and broke it down wild random chaos <laughs> we've got an episode of star trek versus star wars where we were comparing the two franchises we've got a that's debatable superman versus batman that's a total of 14 original episodes 27 all together with over 28 hours of content so please check out our patreon page and get all of it spanning all sorts of different movies biggs and i are interested in sports movies but we like to talk about other stuff too there are just so many cool guests there's so much cool content and you can find it on our Patreon page. Patreon.com slash Fields of Glory. That's Patreon.com slash Fields of Glory. Go there, 
and make a contribution. We are not wealthy people. We spend lots of time making the content that might have helped you do your dishes or drive somewhere that was not very entertaining or interesting. If you've enjoyed any of our content at all, if you want to find more, patreon.com slash fields of glory. Okay, MVP. I'm going to go with the Sundance Film Festival. Movie doesn't exist if you don't find funding, so. Uh, I got to go with Parminder Nagra here because, like, her character, Jess, is amazing. Jess is believable. She's subtle. She's believable. She's believably good at soccer. You know, believably concerned about her family and all of those things. She's walking a very, very difficult line. She's playing a kind of token hero in a sports movie, but she comes off as just this girl who likes soccer. And I don't know. I just thought she did an incredible job in this movie. I was pumped. All right, six man. I'm going to give it to Curtis Mayfield for Move On Up, which inexplicably appeared twice in this movie. Just move on. Even if it doesn't quite work with the rest of the soundtrack, I can always use more hand drumming. Dude, I love Curtis Mayfield. Well, I put that the sixth man for the movie is Joe, but I don't like Joe. Joe's character is framed as your typical coach, your typical guy. He decides to pass up on the assistant coaching job to become the coach of the women's team. He's instrumental. He's integral. And honestly, I'm giving it to him for the scene where he's standing there waiting for her to show up. And then she shows up and then he has to drive the van to the airport. As a former debate coach, I have driven so many goddamn vans in my life and it is always to get the team from here to there and if you're not doing it we're not going i don't like joe but i'm giving him that six man award the billy zabka most outstanding villain award jules's mom for the tired plot point that's often repeated in the late 90s to the 2010s of thinking someone is not straight to cook up a bunch of bigoted jokes while still trying to have the air of progressivism when the character is rebuked for it the way she has to backtrack she does it at least twice and both times are legitimately funny where she's like no i'm okay with it just not as you're the person that we're talking about yeah the villain i'm just gonna go with just straight up sexism it's just sexism like women athletes are absolutely awesome they are as capable if not more capable than many even potentially most male athletes the idea that men are better at sports privileges the physical strength nonsense that we associate with masculinity which is potentially genetic but also deeply cultural and if we imagine generations of women being raised to play sports as if it's the most natural natural thing in the world, then I don't know that we would have those discrepancies. And also worth pointing out, soccer, football, basketball, does not matter. Some of the greatest players of all time, we're not very big. We're not very strong because sports are not just brute strength. They are always about more than that. The fact that women's sports have to fight for everything and and get nothing. Women athletes get paid nothing. Megan Rapinoe, who is a gold medal winner, gets paid less than the president of my university. Just not okay. That's not okay. She is a legend in women's soccer. It sucks. I'm just going to rant about that here at the end and say that all you big sports nuts out there, if you don't know your favorite women's team or your favorite women's player or the greatest women's player from your city, you're no kind of sports fan. You're just a sexist. Black Monday. Joe, you neg Jess. Then you built her up and took her clubbing. You tried to kiss her, causing a fracture in your team. You tried to kiss her again and she refused, telling you it would destroy 
destroy a relationship with her parents. Then you show up to kiss her again, literally behind her parents' backs. <laughs> Get out of my office. Don't try and force a kiss on any of my staff on the way out. Why didn't her parents see them kissing at the airport? Beckham. Yeah, Beckham. Okay, fair enough. The first one I understand, like, Jess comes out of that club really, really, really drunk. I felt like she was making the move there, but if he's kissing her in that instance, it's unconscionable. Definitely shouldn't be doing that. But in all cases, coaches, don't kiss your athletes. Don't do it. Well, we'll be back next week continuing our block on Family Matters with the League of Their Own. But coming up next, Joe Rogan nags a group of frat girls until they eat a bucket of worms covered in Worcester sauce. Fear Factor, coming up next. Or you can watch literally anything else. Definitely, Gary. I think we finally found the missing piece of the jigsaw. And the best thing is, she's not even reached her peak yet. Okay, thanks, John. Well, we're joined in the studio now by Jessie's mother, Mrs. Bamra. Mrs. Bamra, you must be very proud of your daughter. Not at all. She shouldn't be running around with all these men showing her bare legs to 70,000 people. She's bringing shame on the family, and you three shouldn't encourage her. Check out all the podcasts brought to you by Redwood Sound Labs. Finally, a podcast that's dedicated to talking about your favorite sports movies. Whether you want to hear a breakdown of the plot, arguments about who's the MVP of the film, or crit and lit about it, you'll find it all on Fields of Glory. Listen to the show that will help you live a better life with your beloved pets. It handles topics like proper food, nutrition, positive reinforcement training, and more. Certified dog behavior consultant Charlotte Peltz welcomes your pet concerns and questions in the podcast Living With Your Dog. Zach and Matt are two horror movie enthusiasts of varying experience discussing horror movies through the scope of content, context, and comedy. They'll hit on the good ones in the classics, but they're really excited for the bad ones. Listen to Watch No Evil. Charles is a Purple Heart recipient and cinematographer. Aaron is a professor and critical cultural scholar. Together they explore the narrative, effective, and production politics of war cinema on the Real War Project. That's R-E-E-L, War Project. 